Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And The Human Voice on the other side of the microphone that I have today is a very special guest. Her name is Kendra Jones, operating under Leica Consulting since 2020. She's a notable futurist and consultant, providing insightful foresight in emerging technologies and systemic changes. She has a rich history in high-tech strategic operations at Apple and a strong academic foundation from MIT and the University of Houston. Kendra blends practically practicality with visionary thinking. Her endeavors span from hosting a future-centric radio show to leading the Remote Futures Research Lab. Through her consultancy, Kendra embarks on exploring the intersection of technology, human interaction, and the uncharted waters of emerging tech, providing a nuanced perspective on the potential vistas of the future. So as you can tell by the intro and Kendra's bio, this is right up our alley and I'm looking forward to speaking with her. So let's jump right in. Kendra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. Yes, I've discovered you. I think we follow each other on social media, maybe Instagram. And first of all, your photos and your posts, so many beautiful pictures and really interesting perspectives. And then when I saw that you were trained as being a futurist, and we want to get into that here in a few minutes, it really, really piqued my interest in kind of seeing the intersection of these things, because so many of of the things that we talk about here on the podcast with my guest really kind of delve into that world. And I'm a very, very amateur futurist, but I think our interests do intersect. So before we jump into all the interesting things you've done in your career and, and what you're doing now, I'd love for you to define, if you don't mind, what is a futurist? Because many people may not know that that's actually a, a field of academic research and that's your training and your background and your career. So what is a futurist? <laughs> what a great question, because there is so much debate about it. And even I was we're really reluctant and quite hesitant to embrace it because it it's almost sounds so grand. I've been more comfortable actually calling myself a scenarioist. There's also, it's also a, a bit of, futurist is a loaded term in that it kind of invites a bit of caricature in 2023 and maybe sure. even earlier. I remember being really young and I remember my mother bringing home future shock. I remember my parents bringing home these futures books and I was so interested and I was little. And I said, what is that? And they said, well, they're predicting all these trends about the future. And and I always hold this memory in my mind about, wow, you could do that. And I didn't, I've never really felt comfortable or confident in saying futurist. And like you said, it we might be hesitant about it because, you know, there, there's, it's just, we, we can all be comfortable being amateur futurists. I think that's actually a really healthy position to be in. But to answer your question, I do think futurists look way further ahead than, for example, what I think a lot of people are doing now, which is strategic foresight or, or planning, which is, you know, fundamentally that's doing strategy that's strategic planning so it's a near-term look close time horizons and near-term forecasts where really what's underpinning that is that it's something actionable it's something that we can measure within you know our time spans 
we'll probably get into this, but I live out in the the northern edge of the Chihuahuan Desert, and I've you know I'm I'm interacting a lot with geologists and astronomers, and I love that because their sense of time, you know, these massive time scales, they can be so cavalier about these phenomenal amounts of time. And it's it's a humbling element in in how we might see ourselves as futurists. But long story short, we're concerned about what's going to happen mm. in the future. So would you also say that another way to understand it more accurately is like foresight analysis. You are trained in and you use methods and process to, to say, let's analyze some potential scenarios so that we can plan, look what may happen, set up scenarios. So would foresight analysis be kind of a, a good way to say it as well? Yeah. And I love that. I love doing analysis. I love digging into the signals. I love, you know, researching and being critical about that. And it's almost like I was talking to somebody else on another podcast about that it really is about like intelligence gathering and and where I think you and I might have a, an intersecting interest is in reading the media through that. So, so much of what I'm doing, I, you know, my conversations are really evolving into having a lot of or growing an understanding of media literacy and pulling that and kind of being able to be critical or curious about these signals. And and part of that is a little bit of going against the grain and sort of being counterpoint to maybe what a lot of the people, you know, a lot of, but a lot of other voices are saying, but that's right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, and I think what I, th where we do intersect and which I think is really interesting is I consider myself an, a media ecologist as well. And that's kind of my PhD work is media ecology. And I think as a foresight analysis as a futurist, as, as you work in your space, I, it seems to be that you also are working with the ecological landscape too. What are the potential, not only individually and business-wise, but also ecologically and media ecology doesn't necessarily have to do with just the media landscape itself, but how, how it affects people, how it affects environments, both present, past, and long-term. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's an interesting intersection as well. Yeah. So, so you have a diverse career, Kendra, spanning strategic operations at Apple. I want to hear a little bit about that, what, what kind of stuff you did in your field, to futures consulting. Um, how has your past experience in the tech industry shaped your current foresight methodologies? Well, doing a lot of analysis and doing complex international projects that are that were focused on operations mm -hmm. and supply chain have given me a bent to the practicalities of futures and foresight. So mm -hmm. I guess that would put me in a different posture than some of the people that are doing more of the artistic, imaginative, or fantastical futures thinking. <laughs> I do feel a grounding. <laughs> While I do love that, and I think there's a crisis of imagination and a crisis of perception, it's just a matter of me kind of knowing my skill set. And I, I like to do analysis. And uh, I mean, it's a beautiful field because you kind of need both, right? You mm. kind of need the analytical side, the critical side, and the curious side. You have to think creatively, like what could be, right? 
Yes, yes. I think what I, you know, what might be most relevant for this conversation and expressing the work at Apple is that my projects included like the very first iPhone. And so what I'm taking away from that, that, you know, that decade of extreme scale at Apple and, and I had line of sight to like quantity, basically, like I could see that scale, that movement of a consumer object, that new introduction. And it takes a little while, of course, in hindsight, we just see like that is, was firsthand experience in how deeply that has shaped everything that we're doing subsequent like that really changed things and it really changed how people communicate how we relate to technology i mean that was a a groundbreaking thing and then later i did mit after that Mm. so i'm a late in life (laughs) same (laughs) and yeah and it was so fascinating because you know they kept referencing at the time mit was 2017 that year and they were continually referencing projects that like I w- was involved in. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what they're talking about now because I'm, I'm obviously it's been a few years and things have changed. Maybe it's uh, crypto or quantum or, or likely AI, but th- that was still kind of a watershed societal change. I guess, is that a fair answer? To yeah. Your question? yeah, absolutely. I, I, and what I'm wanting to know uh, is the your work at Apple doing, were you doing kind of foresight analysis, future methodologies there? Not at all. There was a lot of interaction with the team that was doing what we would call forecasting and they had a really challenging job. And even, yeah, and even VIPs were, you know, we would get presentations every quarter about how close we were to forecasts. And even the VIPs would be, or sorry, the VPs would be, you know, apologetic to the forecast because it was very, very hard. And no, that wasn't my work, but I certainly had to react to it. And you had to react to it in a practical way, right? You had to book the planes or book the distribution center, or, and those are material things. So so you'll, you know, as we talk further and, and continue getting to know each other, you'll see like my interest really is in, in, in physically realizing primarily the movement of people and goods, but, mm. le- you know, I, I don't ever want to take clients or anybody that I'm working with or any project that I'm just kind of lost in the realms of possibility. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's necessary. But I think you know, I think the artists and filmmakers do that very well, and and I'm happy to do it. But under the umbrella of Black, I I don't do that. I keep it practical. I try to. Yeah, that that's interesting. So you referred to yourself as as a young child. You're you're family, your parents bringing home these future shock books. Did, I'm dying to know, it, it, did you have an interest in both the, the foresight and prediction as well as maybe some of the science fiction time travel? Was that of interest to you too? Because stri- <laughs> this, this strikes me as someone who kind of what could be or like, what if we were to go in the past and and learn from it and then project into the future of what could happen and influence that? Is that something? My interest in all things creative and curious was really uh, a credit to my parents who mm. took me, um, you know, all around the world. And they were very inventive, creative people. And at the time that they were working on some of their, um, you know, kind of peak moments in their career, really was that first 
maybe it's not fair to say first, but it was a moment where art and technology was really meshing mm. and and not in a way, you know, we can be a little bit cynical about that now and that gets kind of becomes a little bit of a, a trope or a caricature, but they they really were fascinated with everything that you just described as like pushing the limits of where we could go, where we could travel to, what we could invent. So I also remember like my dad building little robots and things like that, <laughs> like busting into my school with this robot that he had invented and there wasn't you know we can giggle about that now but there really wasn't a template for that fashion and 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 that you know is maybe i know that you're running this but that's i guess the prompt to the McLuhan connection yeah absolutely please is that so i was born in edmonton and that's where marshall McLuhan was born and that is the, the 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 descriptor there is my father's social circle and academic circle that was something that they were con- concerned with, which was media, technology, art, sculpture, kinetic sculpture. And so my godfather was the, was a student of McLuhan's and they were very close. And I do remember that I do remember my dad and him, you know, letting me stay up late around the table and, and treating me like one of the adults. So I was able to sit at the table and hear their conversations, which I loved. I absolutely uh, love a good conversation, and that is one of the the things that I cherish in my friendship group. Is and even things like that we're doing this. I, I you know I really thank you for this because I think that so much of what is moving people's thinking forward is the capacity for generative conversation, and that is a skill that has I've noticed even in myself just rusted during COVID. So any kind of effort I can do <laughs> I I have heard myself and just been like Kendra wow like this is you know you really have to keep at it and so part of that is like doing a radio show having the conversations and constantly developing our ability to speak about the future and and move thinking in ourselves and in others forward in that way mm, mm. so if I understand you correctly in the context of conversation, you, some of your earliest uh, memories as a child was was being in the room while your dad and others and Marshall McLuhan was were talking about some of these ideas. Is that is that what I understand you said? It's like an inheritance of those ideas. Yeah. So you're wow. they're imprinting on you in in ways that were also you know that group. Uh, I can't speak for the McLuhans, but at least for my family, were kind of. Well, let me just be out. You know, they're hippies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they were adventurous hippies. So they know. were not just free thinkers; they were like future free thinkers. <laughs> they were yes, they were future free thinkers, and they were you know really understood that their social mobility being so provincial in Canada. You know, you're so far removed from kind of the big metro hotbeds of anything, which is, by the way, something I find really fascinating and is what I do in my future's work. You know, I'm I'm very rural, I'm very remote, and there's some intentionality about that. But, you know, the mobility to the, their social mobility, they understood was through the quality of their ideas, the quality of their taste as well, because they were dealing with aesthetics. And yeah, just quite an adventurous 
group of thinkers that were quite removed from what I think we see now, which is more of a more of copycatting or more of meme type of ideas. So we see something somewhere else and we want to emulate that. They didn't really have a lot, you know, an imprint for that. So it's yeah. quite original thinking. Well, what I love about whether it's McLuhan or Neil Postman or, you know, any of these media theorists or future theorists or is that they, they it's almost like they had a a a vision into the future and so much of of what they talked about is just becoming relevant and i think what we misunderstand is not that it's just becoming relevant but that it's always been universal and i think to me that's the magic and and really doing the hard study thinking research putting together a thought process that says can we step back and say what is the deeper meanings here that have impact that are universal and therefore will impact the future that we get we get sidelined on all the peripheral things so that that kind of leads me to the next question is you have a newsletter i believe it's called super scans is that correct and yeah yeah a ra- radio show futures and frontiers and you engage with uh, a broader audience on signals of change What's a recent signal, I'm putting that in quotes, that you've discussed that holds significant implications for our future? The, the, the signals of change that I've been really consumed with over about the last year and a half, although my, my experience with them goes, goes further back than that, but the thing that, has, that I've been really talking about and paying attention to over the recent over the last year is the border and border surveillance and basically all of the technology impacts in the movement, the physical movement of people and goods. And there's a lot of different dimensions to that. There's a political dimension, there's uh, cultural dimensions, there's an illicit economy or the bad actor dimension. But what I have seen is where I'm based, which is about an hour from the Texas-Mexico border, um, an escalation or sort of the first of this kind of technology. Mm. And I think that that has obviously like broader implications for all of us. And, and that may be fairly obvious, but it is always surprising to me when I talk to people in one of the main, you know, a major metro area that are encountering those things for the first time. It's, you know, you want to say that you kind of saw it, <laughs> you saw it coming to life first, or you, you saw it down in a specific region. And so almost by the, the pressure of COVID, I had to stay put where I, where I am. And so that was not necessarily intentional, but I tried to make it work. And it proved that, you know, this region that I'm in proved to be fascinating for that. So we have you know, these layers of things going on, layered complexity between, you know, different sovereign nations, defense contractors, emerging technology, private military contractors. And what that does is it it, it is personal experience with these larger forces that they think, you know, the, the writing is kind of on the wall that I think a lot of innovation and invention is going to be bought up or is, you know, advancing or progressing through 
U.S. defense channel. So mm. it, the the new innovation lab, other than maybe AI, although the U.S. military is working on its own AI, but let me not get too off track. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Because this is one of the 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 good things and the curses of the foresight is you have to foresight is about broadening your view so you're kind of trying to look at the kind of everything all the time in space and it can be a bit of a headache for oneself and and (laughs) once loved ones but yeah well let me let me narrow it in let me narrow it in a little bit for you because that that's fascinating by the way i would never, I mean, obviously I know there's border surveillance. Obviously I know the issues that are in the news and both sides of the, you know, perspective on this, but I, but I guess I hadn't even considered like, okay, if our country isn't investing and working on technology to survey that border, what is the implications to the wider non-border you know, areas of, of the country. And I hadn't even thought about that. That's really interesting. So I guess, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the second and third order impacts of that are, yeah, I think that that's a, a perfect example of um, the new, a new form of shaping society and, and social interaction and mobility in its, in all senses of the word. Um, but I do see that as being very much lab tested here or, or proof of concept down here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that now we're starting to, to intersect our interests. So let me ask you this question, because I think this will narrow it down even further. So having contributed in the past, Kendra, and to the discourse, and currently you are, and I know you will in the future, on the discourse on human technology interaction and human factors, how how do you see the relationship between humans and technology evolving? And, you know, feel free to throw in AI. I know that's a hot buzzword now. And what should decision making makers be considering now to prepare for this evolution? I think decision makers and, you know, I do leadership consulting and I think the the message is you're going to need to be really comfortable with making decisions when you don't have all the information. And that maybe that is something that is true in the past, but it will be pronounced in the future now and in the future. I think that um, there's not even going to be a hope of having all the information because so much of AI is going to be black box to so many people. There's just this like phenomenal emergence of intellectual dark matter basically so if you're in a leadership or a decision-making position i think that that is the future reality the evolution between human and technology or human and computer is i mean that's a huge question but i i i'll drill it down to something that i encountered uh, last weekend and this was a conversation actually with a priest so this is in a church environment sure and the the priest is suggesting don't treat people as things. And my mind is going to, well, I think in the future we need to actually flip that where we're going to be considering things as people. And I think you're going to see these very deepening relationships, personal relationships with AI. Your kids are going to have AI friends. You do yourself are going to have, you know, the comfort or 
I don't know how to shape the relationship, but you're going to have these, you know, you just extrapolate that and caricature mm -hmm. it out into the future. And how does that go is you've got these deepening webs of communication, of, of connection with machines, with, with robots. And I would just suggest a, a great book that I'm working my way through right now, which is David Gunkel, Person Saying Robot, I believe is the title, and it's free to read on MIT Open Press right now. What a beautiful, what a beautiful and accessible book about play, about categorization mm -hmm. and and these ever confounding lines of categorization and and our softening lines between categorization. So we, I do always want to think about the the harms or the impacts of hardline categories. And, and also the universal, I would add to that as well. And that is another thing, just going back to the border and when it, with respect to the movement of, of people and goods is this, the impacts of these categories and the, you know, our, our digital and ledger sorting of people and AI, I think will play a huge part in that going forward. I think there's going to be a lot of corporate investment in uh, ledgering or atlasing the movement of kind of everything. So mobility will be huge. Yeah, that's good. Another similar book. I don't know if you've read Megan O'Giblin's book, God, Human, Animal, Machine. That's a really fascinating read too. The subtitle is Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. It, it delves more, a little bit more into the philosophical, but it's uh, along the same lines. And yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, a lot of, in my work, more the intersection of uh, media ecology and even some cyber psychology is that we always tend to think, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that when we think about AI, people go, oh, that's scary. And you know, we've got a hundred years of really Western science fiction that has trained us and ingrained us that robots bad, humans good, right? Yes. Uh, and so I think that's a lot of it. But I also think too, it's kind of like the frog in the kettle. And I'm sure this is one of the things that that you kind of delve into is that we're already, um, ha we already have deep, deep relationships with computers and machines and robots. And the example I always use is, what do you feel like when you leave home, you're 15 minutes and you realize that you've left your cell phone or your iPhone? Or what do you feel like when you look down and you're about 1% left battery and you don't, you're not near a charger? Like those, those visceral feelings, or mm -hmm. what's the first thing you do when you open your eyes and you roll over in the morning? For many of us, <laughs> for the many of us, it's pick up your phone and, and start scrolling. Like that is an intimate, deep, visceral relationship with a robot, with a computer, with, with artificial intelligence. Not to not to even mention how many times we talk to Siri, to Alexa, to Google, and bark orders and expect it to obey us on a regular basis. So it's really fascinating to me how immersed we are already in this metaverse. Like we've been in it for a while, but also the next iteration of that is certainly not unlike Star Trek The Next Generation, where we say, hey, computer, do this for me, or complete this task or answer this question that that is something that's coming really really near and close i i predict within the next year two years 
there's already sites where people can have those relationships with those those personas and those AI personas, and that's already happening. I guess for me, what I'm most interested in, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is how will that change our sense of of perception? Just as you know, the automobile created the suburbs, created different ways of interacting with 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 each other, our relationships, our our physical our physical engagement with exercise and walking and travel and sitting in cars. We're, we we arguably are different types of human beings than we were 200 years ago. What, how do you think about perception and ways of being as our environments evolve? I'm just curious from a futurist perspective. That's a really hard question. I, I, that might even be a question that if I were to answer it, I'm kind of punching above my weight. Um, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> the, you know, perception is a is a great question, and what I tend to think of with that is my mind is going to arts and culture. Uh, my mind is going to expression as an as a as an antidote to where my mind is really going. If I may, <laughs> this doesn't only answer your question, but I, I, as you're speaking, the whole thing that I'm thinking about is people have this relationship with this phone. And as you said, it's never 15 minutes away from you. It's never more than six feet away from you. But what you're also in that instance, you're in relationship with, and I, you know, it's, I'm just going to go back to the border, but that is now a, a security device. So you've got, you've really actually got an international border in your pocket yeah. because everything is now moving towards an, an app. Right. And so, You've now got this device that is, you know, a cynical way of saying is it's it's a surveillance tool and that somebody is surveilling you, but you are now also completing that. So you're coloring in those lines where you are taking photos of other individuals and you're now kind of in their circle of not maybe not necessarily their circle of concern, but you're in their circle of judgment. And what I'm mm -hmm. getting at is some of the stuff that is very recent where we're seeing political action um, about what's happening in the world right now with, with war and conflict. And people are presenting and reposting and capturing um, full face images of people that are doing these in interventions, political interventions. And so this is a very long way of answering your question about perception, but it really does describe to me that we have, you know, large elements of the population that don't perceive that what they're doing. They don't perceive mm -hmm. themselves in that process. So they don't, you know, all the clues are there. <laughs> and maybe it's like people like you and I that are having these conversations and, and are up to speed on it, but we really are going to see, uh, um, you know, huge segment of people that don't have that awareness of where they are in that step of in the process and what service they're actually contributing to, which is a surveillance or panopticon or surveillance. And and people do that with their children too. So people are what we call sharenting or documenting their kids' lives from toddler age to to teen years. And I really do anticipate lawsuits out of it i really do anticipate 
some really hard, maybe family conversations down the road is I, I was little. Why was my whole childhood broadcast for the likes? So why was it given? Why was my face given to a platform? I was traded for the dopamine hits or whatever. <laughs> so I, I know that that's getting a little bit, a little bit dark, but I think that there just needs to be, I would encourage some savvy about that. Yeah, uh, I find it fascinating in light of even as we're having this conversation just in the last two days, multiple states in our country in the U.S. have have brought lawsuits against Meta because it it appears, and I've even written about and studied this some myself, that Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram and, and WhatsApp, that they had knowledge years ago through their own internal scientists, studies, et cetera, that these apps were psychologically harming teenagers and and younger, but chose to keep those under wraps and continue and not really change anything. Whether that is, you know, wherever that goes and what's the truth, really not for you or I to say, but it's it's interesting that it's being started and approached in this very, very similar way that that big tobacco was brought down that there is something that was marketed to that was knowingly and unknowingly engaged with, with perceived and potentially documented harm. That's really interesting to me. To your point though, we don't always want to acknowledge or see that we are engaging in that and being surveilled. And I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this, is that specifically in the West and specifically in the United States, we're built, we were built on the idea of rugged individualism. And we like to think of ourselves as an individualist type society, you know, to our detriment or to our advantage in many ways. I, th- I think it's, vo- it's both. However, where we can be blind many times is these tools and these environments really steal parts of our unique identity that we don't even realize are happening. And I'm not talking about necessarily security and identity theft. Yes, that those are the obvious, but the deeper things of what you talked about is like we're losing the perceptions of our own individual experiences in life because we're joining in simultaneously everybody else's Everything is an emergency all at one time. Everything is an experience. Everything is a, an emotional roller coaster because we're engaging with it simultaneously at the speed of light versus in the past, we would be able to say we all took turns experiencing those good things, those tragedies, those pains, those victories. And we could then rally around in, in a community and either help, comfort, celebrate, or whatever, now we've lost that community identity in a sense in this new environment where everybody is experiencing everything all at the same time. And it robs us of those opportunities to experience, grow, serve, care care for experience. Have, Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I have a good friend that I've talked with at length about that, which is, you know, this, this experience that really became pronounced, I think, during COVID, where everything was flattened. So you had one screen that was your work, one screen that's, you know, whatever you're doing for fun, you're you're streaming stuff, you're looking at sports, and then you're looking at really just 
the ultimate horrors of the world in the news <laughs> and these what amounts to I think it's fair to call like basically snuff films and then in the next frame is like pictures of some somebody's birthday with their kids very schizophrenic feeling and and how are you responding to that and what actually is that doing to your psyche and I'll, I'll have to go back and dig more into the material that you put out because i know that you're considering that the human impact of all those things but a a beautiful expression of that might be or an elegant expression of that might be that you know 40 years ago we were experiencing the same spectrum of joys and pains socially but we were doing them in a group cadence and by that i mean we're all watching the six o'clock news together right so you are all basically watching we had what three broadcasts right of right three choices we had the channels we knew the channel and we knew what time it is and i'm sounding really really old but this is sure uh, you know we're we were in sort of concert with our with everybody else with our neighbors and so our reactions were were guided on like a common baseline and a common tempo it's very discordant now yeah yeah it was a rhythm it was a rhythm and there's something about rhythms of of being i i always quote eo wilson's statement is he says the problem with humanity is with humans many times is that we have medieval institutions paleolithic brains and emotions and godlike technology and you know, we need those rhythms. We need, you know, that's what, you know, we strive for when we talk about meditation and contemplation and religious practices or whatever it may be. There's something about those rhythms. And, and I agree with you. That's a great, that's a great point that we don't, we don't have rhythms if, if we have chosen, like many of us, including myself, to engage in the digital realm 20, online 24-7, always on. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in your your work and your social media post is that you seem to to have a real interest in in art and you've even alluded to it in this conversation. So and and, and I know that historically artists are always the always the ones that are making many times the most accurate social commentary whether it be political or or just what's happening in the world and interpreting it and, and maybe giving us a vision and being on the front end of what is to come and having contributed to the discourse on the human technology interaction but also your your academic and professional journey seems to blend technology leadership and art how do these domains intersect in in foresight work and can you share how kind of this multidisciplinary approach benefits the things that you do and you do for your clients. Yeah, I was really compelled to to build my consultancy because I saw a gap in those things. I I saw, you know, when I was speaking to people that were really advanced in their quote unquote leadership development and of course there's a whole big industry behind that, the leadership industrial complex or whatever all the books that you see in the, the airports and all the training and HR, things like that. But I really thought that it was necessary to 
have you know bring the conversation of the of futures and foresight into that i mean why wouldn't you and so those skills were you know it, it just seemed like these two things needed to to speak with each other and the the creative piece i guess it goes without saying we have seen i mean for years bob you've probably seen on linkedin every job requires somebody to be creative <laughs> what does that actually mean it's sort of become a meaningless term of praise um and, and i'm sure every organization has it is stacked with creative people but how do we actually see it <laughs> can we actually notice it well, that maybe goes back to your point about perception is um how do you how do you actually use that and not not even as a utility but the ability to recognize that the ability to kind of get out of these sort of performative performative gestures in any one of those fields kind of requires the, the complementary field to kind of break that and test that. So I, I do think you always want to be thinking critically, but with curiosity. And those are the three things that I thought that I had something to offer. I'm sure that, you know, there's way more to fill in to to being a good leader and people will look at that through political science um, or technology or science or anything like that but um, it seemed like that there was a gap in that conversation so that's what I aim to do with the, the space that I've built for clients and so far um, so far it's been good I am always really pleased when um, you know people do start thinking longer term or kind of break out of of their limits as corny as that kind of sounds it's wonderful to see that one-on-one -on -one. it's it's great to see people taking notes it's great to see people asking questions and being a bit of an explainer or an educator in that regard i've gotten a lot out of it that's interesting yeah i would love to hear a little bit as we start to wind down tell me about the futures and frontiers radio show what is that and what i'm out of <laughs> Okay, so we can get into some archaic technology. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about, I really removed myself. So I worked in Austin for years. And through the COVID period, I removed myself from any space that makes sense. It's almost an inexplicable journey. And I'm, I'm in a small town in rural and remote, far west Texas. I'm by the border. And that, while you know, maybe a really perplexing career move that fulfilled a lot of, of um, meaning to me. These are issues that are important. And I, I think in Futures and Foresight, and I've had conversations with people on this, it can feel very elitist, right? Mm. So is is the future only open to the people that can afford to go to Dubai for a business conference and that, that sort of thing? So I think that uh, having space for people that are on the margins or outside of these hotbeds is not only just a really good move, but it helps me so much as a futurist because I can pay attention to the things that are, you know, I can pick up on these weaker signals or these outlier signals. Not all of them amount to something immediately, but that has been really, really interesting and eye-opening. And again, I went way roundabout with your question, <laughs> but no. I just started nosing around. I just started saying, like, what can I do? And and AM radio is not like the the natural first impulse, but 
if you can get in where you fit in, I think go for it. And you're, you're going to have some really, really interesting questions. So that is all being programmed right now. But, you know, I, I, I would consider podcasts and Substack and all these different platforms. And what I felt about that is that you are inviting someone into your world when you do that. And not only that, there's a bit of a gate where you're asking them to have the laptop, have the connection, have the login, subscribe, do the two-step confirmation and all these things, and then perhaps even pay, become a member. That's great. I, I'd be happy to do that. But the, the flip of that and the way I was thinking, this is making me think about this in a much more, in an interesting way for me in this moment, is radio, there was no ba barriers to that other than your your. your double a your <laughs> batteries for your you know blast or whatever but you in that instance are a guest in people's homes so yeah. you're in their car you're in their living room i really thought kendra that's going to be a good test for me that's going to be excellent for practicing how you speak about these topics in relatable ways and it's, you know, something on Saturday morning, so I'm not going to get into the most dystopian, dark stuff that that, that I possibly can do. And I, I tend to think that way anyway. But it is a challenge to me of, like, connection and communication. And those are the two pieces of my work that, that I, I do feel a challenge with because I naturally can fall into the analytics and the research and, and being behind a computer. But getting out there and talking to people and it's almost like cosplaying as as a journalist in a sense but but that also does seem rational to me because you're picking up signals you're talking with people you're finding out you know things that are actually significant about water resources about crime about you know smuggling organizations and ecology and and the systems education it's pretty it's pretty fascinating so Thank That's you great. for thank you for letting me champion it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I'm and now. That's an AM station. I'm assuming near where you are. Living. Yeah, yeah. It's right down the road, and uh, it's. Do they have a Do they have a website that broadcast it? Yes, it will be streaming. And again, this is it's still nebulous, and I'm still programming uh, with them and getting them on board. And what it's actually interesting. One of the kind of clue words when I was pitching it is like, well, we can kind of talk about some sci-fi stuff. Yeah. And as soon as you mention sci-fi, you don't really have to go into a big explainer of what a futurist is. It, people can get that and they can reference their things they liked in their childhood or movies that they've seen. So I do, I guess my, my closing uh, position would be, I do think at this moment we're kind of in liftoff era for the sci-fi future. I think sci-fi is now and AI is going to, it's just, it, fundamentally redraw nearly everything that I can think of. And it's just, I, you know, I'm thrilled to kind of be in the, be alive for it. I'm thrilled yeah. to see it. I, I don't know how which way it's going to go, but it is exciting. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great segue to wind it down into your, uh, people want to learn more because I'll be honest with you, Kendra, your, 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 your Instagram does throw off some time traveler vibes because <laughs> You've got all these like cool like photographs and art, and then you talk about your work. But then every once in a while, you'll throw in like old photographs of like people in in a location, and you'll 
tag them and say, oh yeah, these are my personal photos. Wait, wait a second. That's like 60 years ago. And, <laughs> and so, so how, how can people find out about you if, if this has created some curiosity, want to learn more about your work, obviously your consulting site, do you want to say what that is? Sure. It's laka.consulting. It's L-A-K-A dot consulting. And I think you mentioned earlier that laka means field. And I chose that name because I, I love the intersection of, you know, different disciplines and different fields and also looking at a broad range. And I'm on social media on nearly all the platforms as Kendra Deluxe. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Great. Well, Kendra, this has been uh, fascinating. Thank you for taking some time out of your day. And I hope that I hope that I've shed some light on what a futurist is. And thank you for spending the time. It was really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Bob. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. 